Thank you. <laughs> Sounds very dramatic read out like that. Wow. Um, anyway, like Dave said in his kind introduction, my name is Andrew Etter, and uh, I do manage the team at Palantir. Uh, in about early 2016, I think it was, maybe, maybe even New Year's Day, um, I published this book called Modern Technical Writing. Um, and so a few disclaimers before I start the talk here. Uh, I've given a lot of uh, demos and I've taught a lot of classes. And inevitably what happens is I have this really, really detailed outline that I want to cover. And then I get super excited and I just kind of go off track and I, I wander off on tangents. Um, so I will try to stay on track a little bit, uh, but you'll have to forgive me if I kind of start meandering a bit. Um, and also I hate just talking and talking and talking. So if you have a question, just kind of throw up your hand and uh, I might say, hey, we'll get to that in a few minutes or I'll get to that down the road, but I'd love to have it be a back and forth between us as opposed to just me standing up here doing this whole bit here. All right, uh, a little bit about me to start things off. I grew up in Alaska. That's uh, where I lived from about ages zero through 22. Um, and pretty much my life in Alaska was math, sports, and computers, I would say. It was kind of the, the breakdown there. Um, I've been making websites since I was about 14. I wrote my first lines of Python at 16. Uh, I finally managed to get a Linux server stood up and configured at age 17, which was no small feat back in that day. Um, and I played a lot of video games. And so when you're good at math, you love computers, you play video games, people say, hey, you need to go to school and you need to study computer science. Like that's just what people tell you. And so I did that. I got into uh, Cal Poly, went down there, did a year of computer science and said, I can't do this. This is not for me. Something's got to change here. Um, went back home and eventually got my degree in English literature after spiraling through a wide number of majors. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, let's see here. In my professional career, uh, while I was going to school, I worked part-time as a tester, so that's my QA experience, for about a year and a half. Um, I was just about done getting my teaching credential, and that company offered me a full-time job actually teaching classes, uh, teaching software classes. And so I worked in support and training for about another three after that. Then they made an enormous mistake, and they put me in charge of that team. That was about a year of my life. And then Palantir made additional mistakes and hired me and then also put me in charge. Um, so in terms of everything that I present in this book and everything I wrote down and I talk about tonight, I have been accused, uh, probably correctly, of having strong opinions. Uh, but I assure you that they are weakly held and that if you have a strong case one way or the other, uh, I am willing to absolutely change my mind and discuss it with you. I'm not dogmatic in all this. I recognize every company has different needs. And so this is just the approach that's worked for Palantir, and I think it's one that can work kind of broadly. All right, so why write a book in the first place? Um, the dark little secret with modern technical writing is that it started out as a wiki page at Palantir. Uh, it was a new hire guide that I was writing. I thought, this is what I want people straight out of college. They're new to the profession. They're new to the company. This is what I want them to know. And then it got really, really long, and I realized this was not a wiki page. This was not a new hire guide. This was something else. And I went to the Palantir legal team, and I said, hey, is this cool if I publish this? Because I wrote this introduction on company time. And thankfully, they were incredibly supportive. And they said, yes, of course, go for it. Um, and so I went forward with my market research. And by this, I mean, I looked at all the technical writing books available. And I said, none of these really meet our needs at Palantir. 
Um, I don't have a lot of ego about my writing. It hasn't always been a dream of mine to write a book. The reason I wrote this is because it didn't exist. I thought it should exist, and then I thought, I'm a professional writer. I, I can do this, right? Maybe. And then I went for it. Um, in terms of the publishing process, I was pretty confident from the beginning that O'Reilly was not going to accept an 11,000-word book on technical writing. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't high on their agenda, right, in terms of things that they needed in their lives. Uh, and so I figured I would go the self-publishing route, and surely I would make uh, you know, unfathomable sums of money throughout the whole process. So can I get a quick little show of hands? Has anybody read this thing? Do we have any, any readers in the audience? Awesome. That's good, actually, because that means that I can go into a little bit more detail about what the book's all about. Mm. So the book is about 11,000 words, and I think I've distilled it here down to, oh, like 12 words. So we can really uh, keep it nice and concise here. Um, but I'll break down each one individually. Um, learning the first step to writing anything, really, right? You have to learn something really, really well, and not just the product or the subject matter, but also the audience that you're looking to target. Um, this is maybe the least interesting portion of all this, because that initial learning phase doesn't have all the cool stuff you get down the road, which is analytics and feedback and bugs and all those things. Um, but the first time through, sure, you uh, learn all about the audience and learn all about the subject. Next, write in lightweight markup. Uh, lightweight markup I define as uh, any plain text language that uses spacing and punctuation and as few keywords as possible to give structure to a document, right? And so, yes, in HTML, you can wrap things in block quote tags. But in Markdown, you can just add a little caret in front of your paragraph. And now you know, hey, that's a block quote. And the interpreter knows that too down the road. Um, some people have called these humane markup languages, indicating that they're human readable and human writable in a way that XML-based languages are not. Right? I don't want to spend all that time going block, quote, close tag, you know, that sort of business. And then the beauty of all this, though, is every lightweight markup language compiles to either XML or HTML in the end. So you still get all the benefits of having XML. You just don't have to write in it, which is kind of a really ideal situation. Treat like code. This one basically means use the same source control that developers are using. Um, and if your entire company is using Subversion, wonderful, use Subversion. If your whole company is using Git, use that. Um, but you want to kind of conform to the development process at the company. And the reason there is people have already learned those processes. So let's write our docs in such a way that they can really easily reuse those same things they already know, contribute to the documentation, and move on with their lives. Um, I usually recommend Git. I'm told Mercurial is also a great option. I've never touched it. Um, but I think Facebook uses it. It's supposed to be fantastic as well. What is that, Mercurial? Mercurial. I'm sorry. Mercurial. Sorry. Yeah. Next, this one might be the most contentious of all of my uh, points that I put forth in the book. Um, and this is to make static websites. And when I say a static website, I mean a website that has no server-side dependencies. So you don't need to check if Java is installed on the server. You don't need some version of PHP. There's no, there's no SQL database that you have installed. You literally just unzip it into a, uh, into a web server like Apache or Nginx, and you're done. Right? And the beauty of that is it's highly portable in that you can package it up with your application if you need to. 
Um, and it's super, super simple to manage because there's nothing to break. There's no, you know, the database never runs out of space or anything like that. It's just, it's, it's really tight, it's really compact. You get fantastic performance and it's super easy to manage. Um, that said, you do have to do some things here to ensure that the writing process is sane and reasonable. Um, and as well as you do lose out, um, unless you use some third-party services, you lose out on things like commenting or maybe a feedback form um, and possibly a few other features. But things like Jekyll, uh, things like Sphinx, they work around that a little bit. Um, the other beauty of this whole process that I should mention is it lets you build and test locally in a really, really beautiful, straightforward way um, where you write all your documentation, your lightweight markup, you have it sitting there on your machine, you run a quick command at the terminal, and you get the full website sitting there in front of you. And you can look at it and say, okay, what I did didn't break anything here. Like you can check and say, I didn't introduce any new build warnings. Everything looks good. I'm ready to push that commit. Um, as opposed to sending it off to the build server, which churns away for two hours running Flare or FrameMaker or something. And then you check the website three hours later and you go, oh no, I did forget that. It's, uh, it's just a really, really nice, satisfying feedback loop when you can build locally like this. Um, and again, building static sites means that your computer doesn't need to have anything installed. You just pop it open and check it out. And then repeat. And this one, like that first word, learn, is kind of loaded, right? Because you don't just go back to the top and start churning through again. You say, OK, have any bugs come in? Have any new features come out? What do the analytics look like? What, are the, what do the metrics look like in terms of usage? Are people even using this feature that I just spent all that time writing about? Um, it's a chance to re-examine any assumptions that you made in that learning process and try to do a better job the next time around. So the book's done pretty well. Um, this is maybe the craziest screenshot I've ever taken in my life. Uh, and the, you know, the caveat here is that Amazon is really, really quick in the way that it calculates bestsellers and sales numbers. And so this is not the norm. Uh, this is like one moment in which I'm sure Strunk and White dipped and I had a little surge and we kind of got next to each other for a moment there. Um, so at this point, I think uh, this is 14 reviews. I think I'm close to 20 now, still sitting at about four and a half stars. Um, I've gotten that coveted bestseller banner a few times, which never, ever gets old. Um, and I can share actually some vague sales guidelines in case anybody here ever makes it up on the Amazon Kindle store. Uh, I can tell you roughly 10 books a day and you are a bestseller. And it, you go like, oh, 10 books. Like, I can do that. That's not so bad, right? Um, that's 10,000 books every three years if you do the math there. Um, so it is a little bit more than it sounds like. Uh, but, and maybe that's just because my product category is so, na or so narrow. Um, but again, you, uh, you can get up there with not a whole ton of sales. Um, at this point, uh, my sales numbers have worked out to maybe minimum wage or maybe Bernie's minimum wage based on, like, <laughs> based on how much work I poured into it and the actual royalties that I've gotten. Um, so if you were thinking like, oh, yes, I will quit my day job and enter this lucrative realm of self-publishing, I want to dispel you of that right away, right? This is, uh, this is a hobby at best. It's not, uh, uh, at least not something I'll be making a living on for a very long time. Um, to get away from just the gross numbers there, though, uh, it's been really, really nice to get positive messages from people all around the globe. I've gotten nice messages from people in Pakistan and Ireland and New Zealand and, and all around the U.S., um, I think I've had three returns lifetime 
uh, which is incredibly gratifying that nobody feels like they got ripped off and went back to Amazon and said, give me my money back. And in fact, all of those returns were in non-English speaking countries. I said, that's, that's fair. The book is in English and I didn't translate it. And uh, you'd probably be frustrated if, if I got a book in French. Yes? Are there plans for localization? There are no plans as of yet. Uh, I would be fascinated to see how that process went. Uh, but for right now, no plans. Yeah. Um, and also, it's the internet, right? And I published an ebook, and I've gotten zero hate mail. Zero. That's wow. insane. You do any. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you do anything on the internet, you get hate mail. You post a photo of your cat, and somebody you know, posts hate mail. So it's it's crazy to think, right? It's it's unbelievable. Um, and then another really cool thing uh, is being able to see the passages in your own book that people highlighted on the Kindle store, and being able to go in and say to myself, okay, in the second revision. Don't cut those sentences. Like those, those worked out well. Um, you know, saying, oh, 14 people liked this passage and that kind of thing. It's fantastic. Um, so in terms of uh, big questions for the group here, we have uh, questions that I won't try and answer. Um, if I had published this for free on Medium, let's say, or on my own personal blog, uh, does anybody here think it would have gotten the attention that it did compared to $4 on the Kindle store? Right? And so the question is, in terms of free versus paid in the digital world, how does that change our perception of something? Somebody says, hey, I, I made this incredible album of MP3s and I'm giving it away for free. I don't know that I'm going to listen to it. If they say, hey, here's one free one and then you can get the rest of them for $10 in the iTunes store, that's a different proposition. It's maybe a little bit more intriguing. Um, and likewise, in the physical world, we're at an IHOP, right? People go crazy over the free pancakes. They go nuts. Right? But if you go, hey, this sushi joint down the street, they're giving you a free tuna roll with every purchase. I, I don't want it. I do not want that tuna roll. Right? And so there's this notion of a luxury good versus a commodity good versus, uh, you know, at what price do we start to doubt the integrity of the free thing versus, you know, what sort of discount is, is suspicious, essentially. Um, so anyway, something to think about, not something we need to answer tonight. Yes? I'm just curious. I yeah. actually heard um, a, a big commercial publisher say that sometimes raising the price actually makes the book seem more valuable just, yeah. just by like $1 or $2 and you can get more sales. Absolutely. No, I, I haven't tweaked the price. And um, I guess really the only direction I could go is up, right? If I, like, <laughs> like, if, I, <laughs> like if I went down, suddenly I've... Um, in a way, let down like my best customers, the people who bought it when it was full price at the beginning. So I kind of I feel like I would have to go up and see how things went. Um, how did you yeah. Determine that price point? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I knew that I didn't want to be in the one to two dollar kind of bargain bin short story range. Uh, I wanted something a little bit more than that because it was technical. Um, on the other hand, it is super short, and so I looked at. Uh, is anybody familiar with like the VI Pocket Guide from O'Reilly, the little little book? I think that sells for about eight dollars. And I said, I feel about half that valuable. I feel about half that good. And that's, that's, this isn't even a joke. That's so what I landed is, on, yes. This is the size of the VI pocket guide or just the VI menu? Uh, just the pocket guide. Maybe um, this, I mean, I, I didn't sit down and count the words in the VI pocket guide. But I said, these are both short technical guides. Um, where do I feel like I stack up there? This isn't quite as valuable. Here we go. Let's, let's sit around this price point. 
Do you have yeah. records about people who borrowed it for free since it's on Kindle and other I don't, but I, um, Amazon kind of, uh, mixes all that together in terms of what they show you as the author. Um, and so I can see when somebody read a page for free. That, that shows up in a little graph. And so I can say, OK, like um, people read, uh, let's say, 127 pages uh, today. But I don't know what a page means. I only know word counts. Um, and also, I don't know if that was 120 very unhappy people who all read one page and then put it down, or if that was three people who read it cover to cover. Um, so it's it's hard for me to tell based on the uh, based on the page count, um, and I have no idea how that correlates to actual real life dollars and cents either. Um, I know Amazon claims they pay me something, uh, I just don't have any idea what. Do you have lots of reviews of the book? I do. I have I think 19 or 20 reviews at this point um, on Amazon, and uh, I think the lowest is a three star. So nobody in this room like. Don't do that to me. Don't don't be the don't be the first one star. <laughs> I couldn't take it. I don't know. <laughs> Can you tell if any like tech writing there are tech writing specific programs and I did have one professor down in um, I believe the Atlanta area reach out to me and uh, just kind of say hello and let me know that he was going to be using the book in his class. Um, but otherwise I, have, otherwise, I have no idea if it's being used in academia. Yeah. Um, it would be, every time I have a sales spike, there's that moment where you sort of go, like, what happened? And maybe you Google your own name and you go, oh, somebody reviewed it. Great. Tom reviewed it. That's, that's why the numbers are suddenly you know, <laughs> up here or it's, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but it's very hard to get down to the actual real world event that uh, you know, made that happen. Yes. How long did in like calendar elapsed time did it take you to write it? Mm. Certainly, yeah. Um, the amount of time that it took to write it, I would say, maybe two months of part-time work. Hmm. Let's say. Um, and I know it's not long, but uh, that was my, let's say, maybe a couple hours a day or something. If you were to average it out. Yeah. All right. On to the next slide. So let's shift gears a little bit. We can talk about, um, because I don't want to just talk about the book all night. I, I, you know, it takes like 45 minutes to read. You guys can all handle that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about why I think tech writers even exist, kind of how we operate at Palantir, and kind of go beyond the book a little bit, um, if I can. Um, I have a vaguely illustrative story here, uh, and it's um, when I was uh, a little bit younger, I think I was a junior in college, I studied abroad in France for a semester. Um, and like you do when you're a young man studying abroad in France, you go and you talk to young women. Uh, and so this woman asked, she said, well, what do you study back in the US? And I said, I study English. And she looked at me and she goes, English. And I said, yeah. And uh, she goes, that must be very easy for you. <laughs> brutal, brutal. Um, but it does bring up a point, right? And it's uh, all the people I work with, um, or many, many of the people I work with, are educated, they're well-read, they're highly technical, and they speak fluent English, just like me, right? And so what makes everybody in this room, what makes technical writers better for the job than everybody else at the company, right? What do we bring to the table that they don't? And so we have this phrase here, differentiated value add. This is something my boss asked me one day. 
And I smiled at him and I nodded and I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. I was just baffled. Um, but what he means by that is what do you do that nobody else does? What's your differentiated value add, right? Um, and so the first one here is consistency. And when I say consistency, I don't just mean style. I don't just mean um, that you know, after every H1, you have a paragraph, and that's just how it is, right? Um, by consistency, I mean not letting anybody in the company just self-select a tool. I mean maintaining that consistency across the company and saying, look, at this company, we write in Markdown, we publish with Jekyll, we put it onto Amazon S3, and that's the way we do things, and here's why. And if a team comes out and says, we're going to do our stuff on Confluence, being able to put your foot down a little bit and say, that's problematic, for these eight reasons, right? Um, the accountability one, the second one, is a little bit crass, so I'll just get it out of the way. And it's you have to be able to fire somebody for doing a bad job. You have to be able to hold somebody accountable for the documentation. And if you say, if you crowdsource the documentation at your company, right, and you say everybody writes the docs, nobody's accountable for it, how do you think quality is going to be? Right? You have to be able to have somebody where you, you point at them and you say, hey, the docs are great, nice work, here's your raise. The docs are not great, I'm sorry, we're going to be going in another direction. Right? The next one is writing and curation. This one is pretty obvious. Right? It's, you know, writers, professional writers are better at this than everybody else. That's everybody in this room. And curation as well, making sure that contributions from other sources are up to a certain bar of quality before they make it into the documentation. That's the other big one, right? It's the job of an editor, essentially. Um, and finally, culture. This one's a little bit more nebulous. It's a little, a little bit fuzzier. Um, but I have a very strong belief that having professional writers around, having dedicated writers around, makes everybody else in the company step their game up. It makes everybody else a better writer, just knowing that a professional is going to be reviewing their stuff. Um, and so. All right. This is one that I neglected in the book. I think I, I think I talked about the actual writing for maybe a paragraph or three or maybe a little tiny section. Um, I like second person in documentation. I like the immediacy there. I like being able to say you and just write directly to a human being. Um, and I also like present tense, even for things that are going to occur in the future. Uh, when you press the button, this happens, not this will happen, right? It's easier to translate. It's quick. It gets to the point. Um, so many people in this room, I imagine, work in tech, and so it's especially important that we be inclusive. And so, frankly, I don't, I don't want to see uh, he or she within the documentation, or I want to see it as little as possible, right? Let's let's try and use plural. Let's try and be. Um, let's try and avoid any sort of awkward he or she phrasings, um, and let's let everybody know that it doesn't matter who you are that you're reading. You're you're very much welcome here. Um, Actually, when I was on the way here on the radio, I think they, uh, I think there was an advertisement that said, uh, you know, you know, your special someone this Valentine's Day, uh, show them you care, right? Your special someone singular, but show them. And I was like, you really couldn't have reworded that, it, like to to get that out of there, because I I really don't like the uh, the plural singular, uh, just to avoid a gender, right? Um, and then regarding these arbitrary style decisions that people make where they get into a room and they raise their hands and they say like, yes, I think we should use the Oxford comma or no, we shouldn't or, or it should be E hyphen mail and not email, um, any of those things. I just, I don't care and I can't care. Um, and what I want in every situation like that, I want the people who do care 
to really, really quickly come to a determination, throw it into the profanity filter for their documentation, and then just walk away. Like, I just, there's so many more interesting problems to worry about than these little tiny nitpicky arbitrary style decisions, uh, especially when a tool like a profanity filter can just make the decision for you, right? You, you make it, you throw it in there, and e-mail is, is no more, right? You can't, you know, you can't have a commit with that in it. Uh, a profanity filter, right? So, um, so let's say you have a blacklist of dirty words that you don't want to have in your documentation. Um, you can set up a profanity filter that would, as commits come in, it would scan them for those dirty words and it would reject the commit. Um, I mean, you could just do that with a simple Python script. That's what we use. Is uh, it's. It's maybe 15 lines and a, and a text file that's 400 lines long of, of just absolute filth. Uh, and, and some things like this, right, that are just e-mail. Um. Hmm? <laughs> yeah. Um, so in this case, right, it's like obviously you don't want to have an f-bomb in your documentation. Uh, but on the other hand, you can use it for simple things like this as well, like e-mail, and just take the problem phrasing and just eradicate it once and for all. All right, so let's talk about the benefits of these dedicated technical writers that we have now. Um, and pretty much everything that I've got here boils down to time, right? We increase adoption of new applications. We shorten installation time. We, uh, we help people accomplish their goals. We make new hires useful more quickly. Everything boils down to just saving people time, right? And so the calculus there is basically uh, you're at the job for, I don't know, 2,000 hours a year. Hopefully you are saving human beings out in the real world at least 2,000 hours of time based upon the documentation that you provided. Um, there's a reason as well why, let's say, Microsoft gave away Windows 10 for so long and why Apple makes their OS updates free. And the reason there is that having people on legacy software is this huge nightmare for engineers and engineering teams. And so if we can convince people to upgrade their machines more quickly and get them through that process without it blowing up, we've justified our worth in a really, really big way. Um, maybe the least satisfying answer here in terms of you know, saving users time and all that is to say, uh, I don't have to worry about any of that. It's in the contract that we have to have documentation. Ergo, I have a job and I write documentation. Right? That's, that's kind of a drag to think about it that way. But you can kind of pat yourself on the back and say, but they would not have put that line item in the contract unless they felt like it was going to save them time down the road. Um, so really, it, it kind of equates to the same thing in the end. Um, but that's what we do. We save people time. And since we're talking about time, we can talk about my own prioritization strategies that I apply at Palantir. Um, this is one that I said a year or two ago, and it has pretty much held true over time, which is remarkable for me. Uh, most things... Uh, that I think up and sort of state in a pithy way I give up on after about a month. Um, but this one has worked out well. So for all of these prioritization factors I have here, this is all, all other things being equal, right, in the way I look at this. Um, so all other things being equal, I prioritize back end over the front end, right? And by that I mean, the installation of the server, how to extend uh, the application through the public API, um, 
any customization or configuration options. I'm much more interested in writing that content than I am in writing a pictorial, here's how to use it, walkthrough. Um, and the reason there is people really, the back end is non-obvious, right? You can't figure it out. But a user interface, at least there are some clues to the user. So all things being equal, I go to the back end. Um, this 1.0 is greater than 0.1. This is project maturity. If a project is 1.0 or hit 1.3 or something and the documentation is terrible, I'm much more interested in getting that up to scratch than I am at the new alpha that just came out. Right? That can wait. The mature products really are the ones that need the attention. Team size is, and this, by this I mean development team size. This is an indicator of the investment that the company's making in a product. If they've thrown 10 developers at something, that's the company saying this is a really big deal to us as opposed to that team over there with only two people, right? And so this larger development team is probably in greater need of a dedicated writer in this world of scarce resources. Uh, the user base is also huge, of course. Um, if an application has no users, what do you need documentation for? The answer is to get users, but that gets a little bit challenging, right? Um, especially when you have, let's say, five or six other apps that all do have users. You can kind of prioritize those first. Analytics are huge, huge clues here and huge pointers to where you should be focusing your efforts. Um, and by analytics, I do mean who's reading the documentation, what do your page views look like, all that. But I also mean uh, how much time are users spending in the applications that you're looking to prioritize? Um, what are they doing in those applications? Are they clicking on that help button? Like You should have those metrics from just within the app. Uh, the product team would uh, often have those metrics just to make good product decisions. And you can piggyback on them to make good documentation decisions. Um, and finally, not overlooking meta projects. Um, I define a meta project as a project that benefits the documentation as a whole. So that would be adding better search engine optimization or cleaning up the styling or um, you know, fixing up uh, if you have like a build machine that's been really uh, flaky lately. I'm taking the time to fix that up and actually prioritizing that above other project documentation and saying, hey, that project has to wait because we have this cruft that's built up that we need to deal with. Um, and the beauty there is if you have 10 or 15 or 100 documentation projects, this benefits all of them in a way that just sitting down on one product and writing docs there doesn't. Um, so you have to make that calculation as well. This is my team. And I am so incredibly good with Photoshop that I'm sure you won't notice the one person that I snuck in there. Um, the problem here is on my team, every time somebody is out on like a work trip um, or they just can't make it to the office for some reason, maybe traffic is bad, we go out and we do something and we get milk tea or maybe we get ice cream or whatever. And so I have no photos of me with the entire team because every one of our outings at least one person is missing. Uh, and so I had to Photoshop poor, uh, poor Roman in up there in the upper left. Um, in terms of why I'm showing the team here, is my hiring criteria for writers, the things that I look for in great writers. Um, for the most part, I'm looking for fast learners who have a really strong technical foundation. And when I say tech foundation, I don't mean that they need to be a CS major or that they need to be a professional developer or anything like that, but I am looking for people who are fluent and credible with developers, right? People who have at least a little bit of CS under their belts or some interest there. Maybe they've done some independent learning. Um, good writers, not necessarily great writers, uh, at least in my book. Uh, I can probably take a good writer and coach that person into a great writer. 
I have really, really struggled to take somebody who didn't have a good technical foundation and get them to that point. It's a much longer journey, at least in my experience. Um, in terms of the majors of all of these people in this photo, we have a couple English majors. We have, uh, I believe, three computer science majors and one person with a master's in theoretical physics. Um, yeah, do you want to do you want to take a stab at? <laughs> no, I'm not going to go for it. <laughs> this it's this gentleman here in the uh, in the lower left. Yeah. Um, but previously as well, uh, we had a really, really strong writer leave the company maybe a year ago or something, and he had no college education whatsoever. Um, so in terms of when a resume comes in, I'm not really looking at where a person went to school or what they studied. I'm looking at the skills that they have listed there. I want to check out a technical writing sample. Um, I want to see what they've done and what they know. I don't care so much about where they went to school or what they studied. All right, let's talk about the old way that we did things at Palantir when I first started. When I first started, I think we had, it was maybe 10 or 11 or 12 technical writers at the company, something like that. Um, and we wrote in FrameMaker on Windows machines, and we committed those to Subversion. And then after about two hours, uh, the FrameMaker build servers would spit something out onto a website, and we would navigate to that URL, and I would say, oh my gosh, I forgot that comma. Right, that's kind of how things went. Um, the files we stored weren't even uh, XML. They were binary. Uh, and so there was no really rich diff in terms of when you did a commit. You would just see that you know, Andrew committed something. And here's what he says he did. But I have no idea if he actually did that or what his change was. Uh, there was no concept whatsoever of review. I would literally link to the page and send it off to the team and say, hey, can people take a peek at this? Uh, this is what I wrote. Let me know if it's OK. Um, and bugs were very much like cold cases because the tech writing team, these were the only people who could fix bugs in the documentation. And so somebody would report a bug in JIRA, I would open it up, and I would have to gather context and say, okay, what, what was the actual problem here? And let me spin up a stack and actually check it out and, and see if I can figure out and get in touch with the developer on Slack or something. It was this huge hassle. Um, later, we migrated to Flare, which was a little bit better. Um, in that at least we were storing things in XML now, XHTML to be exact. Um, and you can build locally in Flare, so these were big boons for us. Uh, but in the end, it still wasn't really what we were looking for. We have questions here before I move on. I know this is a big slide. So what are you using uh, We can get to that on the next slide, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Cool, so the new way. Uh, we have a much smaller team now. Um, at this point, you saw it. That was the whole team. Um, so it's me and uh, five writers at this point. Um, and the nice thing here is all these tools that we chose, all the ones that I went over at the beginning in terms of you know, use lightweight markup, make static sites, uh, you can do these using any text editor you want on any operating system you want. So it's all tool agnostic. We say to people, hey, here are what, you know, here's what I use. Use whatever you want. If you really want to use Emacs or Vim, like, have at it. More power to you. Uh, I don't use those things, but you could. Um, everything is stored in plain text, which doesn't seem all that revolutionary until you've looked at a side-by-side -side diff of the old and the new and in your favorite Git, uh, Git client and been able to say, oh my gosh, that's exactly what somebody inserted. There's no garbage around it. I don't have to read any tags. It's just perfect, plain, human-readable text that you can say, that looks like great stuff. Let's, let's merge it in. Or, whoa, no, <laughs> that's got some problems. 
Um, this is maybe their most remarkable uh, stat of all, and it's one that I have to share, is that we get more pull requests in Git than we do bugs about the documentation. Do people know what a pull request is? OK, uh, a pull request, uh, because of the way that, that Git works, um, Git is a distributed version control system, which means that every person, at least in the eyes of Git, is pretty much equal. Everybody has everything. That server over there is no more important than the repository I have running on my computer. And so a pull request is me saying to somebody else, hey, I've made some changes. Would you like to accept these changes? Would you like to pull them? Uh, and so we have more people around the company who are not dedicated writers making contributions to the documentation than we do reporting bugs on it. People are just stepping in and saying, I spotted a problem, and it's really easy to fix, so I'll do it, as opposed to submitting a bug and saying, you guys handle it. Um, and so that's, that's really, really huge for us. It's unbelievable. And it's not by a small number. It's not like we're talking you know, two to one or something. It's five to one. We get five times as many PRs as we do bugs. It's crazy. Um, and that's maybe the best part of this, this new method that we have, is we're able to get by on the smaller team and still maintain a really high quality bar because we have all these people around the company contributing their knowledge. Yes, Tom? Is your Git system internal when they're submitting pull requests, or are they interacting with GitHub? Uh, it's internal, yes. Um, it's, uh, if you're familiar with like Bitbucket and GitHub, um, Bitbucket offers uh, um, it's Atlassian. They offer an internal tool called Stash that is essentially the same as Bitbucket. It's just it runs on your software, or rather it runs on a premises for you. Um, and likewise, GitHub offers a product called GitHub Enterprise that is GitHub. You just put it on your own servers. So, so do the engineers interact with some kind of GUI to edit content and it like forks it and so forth? Or are they actually just going into like a code repository and doing everything through the command line? Uh, it's both, actually, right? Um, GitHub has a half-decent web-based editor. So you can literally just click in on GitHub and say, it'll bring up a little text editor. You can make your change, and it goes through the fork and the pull request process for you. Um, but we do have people out there who go to their command line, and they, they Git clone their repository. They make their change in Vim. They do all the, pro or, uh, do all the extra commands there and upload their change as well. Yeah, so uh, we try to enable as many workflows as we can. Basically. Yes? Do you have a review process for all your computations? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You have to. Um, we have, it's, it's really incredible to, to look at all the people around the company and say, this person was hired on as a developer, uh, but she is a spectacular writer. It's unbelievable. Um, and then you get the folks who you say, this person was hired a developer, as a developer, and, and I can see why. Right? It's <laughs> like, just that's, you know, it's not, I, I don't mean to rag on them. It's not their job, right? They're, um, I, I view every pull request that we get as a little gift. And it's my job to, to cultivate that and say thank you and say, let me, let me show you some ways in which we can do this better in the future, maybe, but, but I appreciate it regardless. Yes? Um, what review tool are you using? Uh, we use the built-in uh, pull request review tool that comes with GitHub. Okay. Um, so that's a side-by-side -side diff. Here's what, here's what was there. Here's what's new. Um, and you can see in, in green or in red, this is what was removed. This is what was added, that kind of thing. Are you going to yes. talk about how you move to the old way to the new way? Yeah, we will talk about that as well. Absolutely. Yeah, if I've, if I've sold you and you want to do it, yeah. yes, we will, we will talk about that in a slide or two. Yes? Um, the success that you've had Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people throughout the company 
somebody stepping up and just making the suggested changes instead of to what degree would you attribute that to company culture as opposed to other factors like uh, other more technically reproducible factors? Do you think the same thing would happen with the same team and the same technical setup at another company? Sure. So the question, which I haven't been repeating until now, um, the question is about do I think this is unique to the culture of Palantir or at least it's because of the culture of Palantir? Um, and would this be reproducible at other places? Uh, at least that's how I took it. Yes. Um, it definitely took some time at Palantir, yeah, to get that culture ingrained in people and get them comfortable doing this, um, especially because we did not select Markdown as our language. We used something called restructured text, um, which is kind of like Markdown, except way more powerful and takes about 10 times as long to learn. Right? And so when you have a hurdle like that and developers are already familiar with Markdown, they might be a little bit hesitant. Um, and we have overcome that through just <coughs> We, we run a few workshops on occasion, um, just explaining to people one by one, bit by bit, that we really think this is the better way to go and here's why, and kind of selling them on that over time. Uh, this is something we've built to this more pull requests than bugs over the course of about a year and a half, maybe. Uh, so it does take some time, um, absolutely. But I, I think it would be generally reproducible at uh, any tech company, I would imagine, or many tech companies, I should say. Yes. Sure, let's, uh, let's save that until a little closer to the end. Um, because yeah, that is a fantastic question and one that we could probably do an entire talk on, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> cool, so lightweight markup, I should do a quick aside for the group here and say I don't mean to sell it as the cure-all for absolutely all use cases. Um, lightweight markup is a really, really great way to make websites and simple ebooks like mine, where you don't need crazy complex formatting. There aren't like graphics that you need to have wrapping beautifully or anything like that. Um, it's an okay way to make PDFs and really complex ebooks. Uh, and when I say a complex ebook, like a lot of O'Reilly books are written in ASCII doc, which is another lightweight markup language. Um, and the PDF output is, is fine for these, but honestly, the tooling just isn't that great. Um, for the most part, you take your lightweight markup, you convert it to, let's say, LaTeX or HTML, and then you use another tool to go finally to a PDF from one of those formats. And inevitably, something gets lost in that process, and, and it comes out with weird spacing, or the, the page numbers are in a different font than you wanted. Or, uh, none of it's fantastic, basically. and so. If you're looking at your use case at your company and you're saying the absolute priority for us is beautiful print documentation, uh, you might want to use something off the shelf as opposed to lightweight markup. Because this, what this is really designed to do is get you to a website very, very quickly and in a humane fashion. Um, and lest anybody have any ideas here and say, my next, uh, my next pamphlet that I do, I'm going to do in lightweight markup. I don't recommend it. Don't do it. Uh, you'll write 10 times as much CS as you wrote actual or CSS, rather, as you wrote actual copy. It's not worth it. So tools. This is what I personally use uh, on my machine. And these are kind of the essentials for me doing my job. Um, of course, there's some other stuff like an email client and a chat client and all that, but this is what I use. Um, my text editor is Atom. I use the terminal. I check out my uh, work in Chrome before I publish anything. I use GitHub Desktop to do the publishing, and I use OneNote to record all my notes. 
Um, I love OneNote for the record. I have to give it a special plug in any one of these talks I give. Uh, it's, it's just totally fantastic in terms of, uh, in terms of getting my job done. Um, but that said, aside from OneNote, I'm not really here to advocate for any particular set of tools. Uh, and that's kind of the beauty of a system like this, is you can use whatever you want, right? Here's another one that I had here. And uh, I can think of at least, let's say, three more unique ones that uh, we could all use. So let's talk scale. This is uh, one of the maybe most on-the-nose critiques I've gotten of my approach here, is this approach doesn't scale. It doesn't scale. Um, and I don't know what that means, so we have to break down the various meanings of the word scale, right? Um, in terms of performance, uh, absolutely this approach scales, right? Static websites are the easiest and lightest weight thing to host. They take the fewest number of server resources. Uh, and they have incredible stability that once you put them there, unless Apache crashes or unless Nginx crashes, they pretty much work until the end of time, right? And so that scales. And people say, oh, well, it doesn't scale to uh, a team of writers at X. Um, and these are the same tools that software developers use to do their jobs in a distributed way. Um, potentially hundreds of developers contributing to open source projects uh, using these exact same tools, right? Using Git, using text editors. Um, so that's inaccurate, I would say, as well. That It definitely scales to larger teams, and it scales to distributed teams. Um, so if people aren't talking about the number of files, and they're not talking about the number of writers, uh, I think the one that is probably very accurate, and I look forward to the opportunity to prove or disprove my theory, uh, is translation, internationalization. Um, does this scale well if you're translating into 17 different languages? I don't know. I suspect not. I suspect having some amount of custom tooling makes sense at a certain juncture. Whether that's four languages, or six, or eight, or, or 17, or whatever, um, I'm pretty confident that at a certain point you need to get a developer and sit down and, and add some things to this to make the pipeline a little bit more sane. Um, I think for translations, using this tool set, it seems to me there would be an awful lot of babysitting of the various branches you would have to create, sending files off to the translator, getting them back, committing them. Uh, it seems like a big hassle, and I tried to convey that in the book as well. All right, if I've sold you, we can talk about uh, migrating to uh, this method. There's a fantastic tool out there called Pandoc that calls itself the Swiss Army Knife of, uh, of uh, language converters, I think, or something like that. Um, but essentially, it will take input in an innumerable number of, of languages, such as HTML, restructured text, Markdown, DocBook, Dita, I think. Um, maybe not Dita. Um, it will, <laughs> maybe it does. <laughs> but uh, it will take input from any number of formats, and it spits it out into any number of formats. Um, now then, these outputs are very rarely perfect, so if you do <coughs> put all of your markup through Pandoc and spit it out into Markdown or restructured text, you can expect to do some cleanup on the other end. Um, and that's where regular expressions come in handy. Um, do we have familiarity with regex in here? Anybody? Awesome. I'm seeing some nods. Um, these are regular expressions are, they've been around forever in programming. Um, they are a little bit challenging to learn, and the syntax is definitely not human friendly. Uh, but they're incredibly powerful. And if you go bit by bit in a project, as opposed to trying to write a single expression to do all of your cleanup, you can sort of play with the syntax a little bit and say, OK, this thing here, 
that fixed all my tables. Now I'm going to take this next step here, that fixed all my cross-references, and sort of take it, take it commit by commit and chunk by chunk as opposed to trying to do it all in one shot. Um, honestly, you could probably do another entire panel on, on regular expressions. Um, this little reminder here, git checkout-b migration, this is to tell you to make a copy or make a new branch before you do any of this stuff, right? Don't, don't just jump in and start applying regular expressions because you might have to undo a whole bunch of work and start from the beginning if you're not committing incrementally as you go. You always want to give yourself kind of an escape hatch and an undo button, so to speak. Um, the things that are going to give you the greatest number of problems, the table of contents, cross-references, variables, and tables, almost certainly. Um, I've done this twice now where I've migrated from frame to flare and from flare to restructured text. And this has actually remained consistent over the entire thing, um, that each time we've had to redo the table of contents by hand. Uh, cross-references have basically turned into hyperlinks and, and largely had to be redone through a Python script. Uh, variables, always very tricky, and tables, especially in lightweight markup languages, are not great. And so getting them into a picture-perfect format there can be a challenge as well. If I have advice on this front, it is to not try and do it all in one shot before you move to the new format, because you'll be working away for 6 or 12 months before you publish anything. It's to pick the top 2 or 3 or 10 projects and sort of give yourself a minimum viable product and say, this is the number that I'm going to target at the beginning, and I'll get those out the door, and then I can start working through the queue. Um, and consultants exist for this purpose. Um, you know, cost is going to be variable there, of course, but if you're willing to just throw a chunk of change at it, you can get an expert to come in and just handle it. All right, let's talk markdown, restructured text, ASCII doc, the whole bit. Um, if you decide, yep, I'm all aboard the lightweight markup train, let's do this, um, you've got a problem, and that problem is, is called Markdown. Uh, markdown is by far the most popular of these lightweight markup languages, um, but it's also the one with the fewest features. And it's especially missing some features that are viewed as absolutely critical in the field of technical documentation. Right? Things like variables. Uh, when I say includes, I mean being able to reference another file from within a file. And so you know, do that sort of topic-based authoring that we're all familiar with and say, hey, I have this one restructured text file, and I want to include a snippet from this other file right here. Markdown doesn't allow that. Um, and also, conditional processing is so big for us at Palantir, and I imagine it has to be throughout the industry. Um, this is the ability to kind of quarantine off chunks of the documentation and say, hey, when I'm writing for an external audience, I don't want this paragraph to appear. I don't want this entire file to appear. I don't want these eight other files to appear. Um, versus when you're writing for an internal audience, maybe you would want all of that content in there. Um, also not present in Markdown. And cross-references, which are really just self-healing hyperlinks. Right? They're references to arbitrary other points in the documentation. And at build time, they get converted to regular world hyperlinks. And so some people say, what's the problem, right? Restructured text and ASCII doc, they do all these things. So why don't you just use them, right? That's, that's fine. You don't need to use Markdown. Um, and so the problem with ASCII doc and restructured text is that developers don't know them, and developers don't like them, right? And in fact, most humans don't know them, and most humans don't like them. 
uh, Markdown has the benefit of being enormously popular and very, very simple. And so everybody wants to write in Markdown. And then you have to have that 20-minute conversation in which you explain all its limitations, right? And so trying to float this top one here saying, oh, just use ASCII Docker RST, that's going to be a cultural challenge. That's the challenge we went through at Palantir to tell people, hey, we're not using Markdown, and here's why, and trying to get them to accept that. And that took a while. The other option, right, we can just improve ASCII Doc and RST. We can make them more Markdown-like. We can make them easier to learn. That'll just fix everything. Um, and the problem here, I really liken to the Python 2 versus Python 3 issue that came out a few years ago. Was anybody familiar with this? Cool. Um, so Python, uh, I think it was back in 2008, they said, hey, we've got Python 2. It's, it's enormously popular. Tons of people use it. But it's got some baggage that comes with it. Let's go back and do things right. Let's go back and change some things around and, and mess with the syntax a little bit, to the point that they actually went back and redid the print function. I think it used to require braces, and, and uh, or it used to not require braces, maybe, and now it does. I don't remember. Um, but the point is here, it's been, oh, I don't know, it's been nine years, eight years at this point. And the number of places that have migrated over to Python 3 and are using it is, is very, very small. And the reason there is when you have something that was expensive to produce in an existing language, you don't want people messing with that language. So you can't just go back and say, all right, we're going to do ASCII doc right. Let's do this. You can't do that because all the people out there in the world who've written ASCII doc are going to be infuriated that you've changed. And they'll probably use that as an opportunity to migrate to Markdown. Um, and so the last option is likely the best one, I think, for the tech writing community going forward. And that's to extend Markdown. We have this kernel, this base of very, very popular language features that exist out in the world. Let's extend that with some of the things that we need as tech writers to do our jobs efficiently. Let's extend that to include uh, those includes and variables and conditional processing that we just, we just have to have. Um, and so to answer your question from earlier, Tom, the what I still have selected, restructured text uh, or ASCII doc over Markdown, uh, the answer is yeah, likely. Um, in two or three years, I hope that I can change my tune on that and say, actually, this fantastic new extended flavor of Markdown, it's called Docs Markdown, now exists. And we use that because it's fantastic. Uh, but for right now, those extensions just aren't there, I don't feel like. So, yes. with Mark, so you know, with Dita, you can um, <coughs> reuse other concepts to hash references by either pulling them into your data map very easily or doing a conref or whatever. Mm -hmm. Do you do anything like that with Markdown, or are you just copying and pasting? Yeah, with Markdown, the answer is no. Um, with restructured text in ASCII doc, it's either called an include or a transclusion, I think are the, the words that they use for it. And that is precisely that. It's um, some text that you have in the document. Then you have a reference to text from another document. Uh, and when everything's built, it'll pop out with that additional text. Uh, that's both restructured text and uh, ASCII doc both have that feature. Um, it's more analogous to the, I can't remember what the feature is called in Flare, where you can bring in chunks. I think they call them snippets in Flare, yeah. I want to say. Yeah, it's, it's that, that very same idea. Like, let's take a, a small chunk of highly reusable text and you can put it into 12 documents if you want. And that's it for the presentation, actually. How did I do on time? Oh, we came in perfectly. So we've got a few minutes uh, if anybody has anything else for the end here. Tom. How do you do your 
Uh, it's all the tools that are baked into um, code review tools, basically. Um, and so within, uh, I don't want to just keep saying GitHub, 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 because Garrett does the same thing, Stash does the same thing. Um, but it's, it's the ability to actually select a very line, like a problematic line and say, this is the issue, and leave an inline comment there. You can highlight chunks of the text. Um, you can add just comments on the entire thing if you just have a problem with the tone or the subject matter or whatever. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's the same tools that are used for software development, so they're very specific and very feature rich. So did you, did you have to write publishing scripts, or you mentioned doing CSS files? How, how do you do your publishing scripts? Uh, sure. So um, the publishing script is really, really straightforward, right? We just call our static site builder. Um, in our case, we use Sphinx, but Jekyll is enormously popular and very, very good. Um, there's another one called Hexo that's great. Uh, one just came on the scene called Hugo that is written in Go, um, uh, Google's new super fast language. And so I think it can do something like 5,000 markdown files in seven seconds. Its processing time is unreal. Um, so yeah, there's, there's tons of these tools out there, and they're all great. Um, so the publishing script would literally be you know, run Hugo. The site gets output to here. And then you would either use Git to push it somewhere, or you would use a tool like rsync to do kind of the same thing, just to push it to a server. Um, yeah, um, in terms of the, the CSS aspect of that, um, yes, any time that you use one of these tools, you will want to do some sort of customization. Um, inevitably, even if you find a theme online that you really, really like, you probably have to give it some flavor of corporate branding, um, or there will be some aspects of it that you don't like that you'll want to tweak. Um, and so that's incumbent on writers to either learn a little bit of CSS um, or to, you know, go buy a, a box of cupcakes for the design team or something and say, please help, please help, right? Uh, Is the documentation for all the different Palantir projects in the same repository? Or no. That's a great question. Um, the question is, how do we store our documentation? Um, and the answer is, it's kind of all over the place. Uh, we have some teams that store their documentation in a directory right alongside their code. And that can work really, really well um, in the sense that every time that team tags a release in Git, or every time that team branches for a new release, the docs go right along with it. And so they inherit all those same version numbers. Um, but some teams have these really onerous policies, right, where they say, hey, in order to commit to our repository, you need to add this little, this little cryptic string at the bottom that says, you know, no settings files changed or whatever, or all tabs need to be three spaces or something like that. Um, that just makes it a giant hassle. And you say, I'm, I'm not going to do that. We're going to store it in its own repository. Um, and so that's the other option. Uh, some teams have their code repository and another repository for the docs sitting right there. Um, and then some teams, or buckets, I guess you might call them, uh, have agreed, <laughs> let's put all of our documentation into these blobs, these single repositories. And that's usually for products that follow the same versioning scheme. So we say, like, hey, we have this platform. It's composed of eight products. Uh, they all release in sync with each other weekly, and they version at the exact same rate. Let's put all the docs here just for convenience and reusability. Um, so those are kind of the three options, with code, individual repository, or a shared repository. Any other questions? Mm -hmm. How do you get each of those repos to 
get that new update? Sure. Um, we actually have a central machine that does all of the builds for all of our projects. Um, and so every time, every time we do a commit, uh, it gets built and, and off it goes. And, and that machine, in fact, has a shared theme for everything. But local builds that people use for testing purposes might be a little bit different unless they update the theme as well. Um, but yeah, at least we ensure consistency in the eyes of the user, um, if not the eyes of the developer. Yeah. Yes, my question then is, um, so is there someone configuring this theme using their own CSS, and then they're able to switch it? So there's a local CSS, and then there's a standardized CSS, correct? Mm -hmm. um, so in order to implement the new theme, all the computers have to have the same CSS, right? And then you, <coughs> um, I guess the question I'm trying to ask here mm -hmm. is that it seems like when you're committing a file, it's going to be standardized by the machine that architects everything else. So mm -hmm. do you have the opportunity to put local CSS for your specific document? Um, is the question, can individual products customize their docs beyond, beyond what, what happens on the server there? Yeah. Uh, we discourage that because we would like to have consistent appearance across every project. Um, yeah, but certainly there are some, some tricks that you could do. Um, and that's one that if we, if we opened up a project and they all had different colors or something, mm -hmm. um, we'd probably go talk to the team. Yeah. Yeah, but that's a good question. Definitely. Yes? Do you use any like um, CSS frameworks to um, manage or, or improve the CSS for your documentation? Definitely. Um, I did the theme myself, and uh, I wrote it in less. Um, if I had to do it again today, I might use SAS, but they're, they're pretty comparable in terms of what they do. Yeah. Anything else? Yes, sir. Where will you be speaking? I think this is my, my one and only engagement for uh, this year. Um, so yeah, if anybody has ideas or you know, is interested in, in getting me to a conference somewhere, I'd be delighted. But uh, I think this is all I have for the year so far. Yeah. Thank you. All right, let's call it. Thanks, everybody. Thank